I'm speaking with my friend Aru. We're at the ABC here. Aru is an interesting bloke. He comes from South Sudan. Uh, 14 years ago, Aru, is that about right? That's correct. And the other thing that uh, you might notice about Aru, if you saw him, is that he's tall. He's quite tall. I'm about six foot in the old scale. Aru is, uh, how tall are you, Aru? Uh, I'm 6'11". 6'11", wow. And of course, basketball must have featured in your life. Tell me about uh, your life. When I first came into this country, um, I came when I was uh, 13 years old and um, I had an opportunity, you know, start picking, picking, playing basketball. I got an opportunity to go to the United States, you know, play my two years of high school and then I play college ball for four years as well. Ravenscroft in North Carolina. So it's a really good high school and then um, I went to a prep school as well in a called South Kent Prep in uh, Connecticut, Kent. So it was it was a good experience for me. Um, I'm not playing anymore because um, given where I came from, um, uh, my, my family pretty much, you know, value education. So after I finished college, um, I came back. I came back to Australia. I called Australia home and uh and I started um, doing my postgraduate studies at Macquarie University. I'm talking to Aru, my mate Aru. How did you, uh, why did you come to Australia? Why did you leave the South Sudan? What was that about? Before South Sudan became a, a country, um, we were part of the Northern Sudan. It was a one country. And we had a civil war that was going on for more than, you know, 20 years. You know, this was one of the longest uh, civil war in Africa. We, you know, we had an opportunity, you know, Australian government pretty much gave us an opportunity to come here and... Uh, so that's how I came here. My aunt came here first, and um, and I came uh, after her. Uh, she sent me um, a humanitarian visa form. What was it like playing basketball, college basketball? It was interesting. I came from a background where I didn't really play basketball. All I knew when I was growing up was uh, playing soccer. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting used to people asking me every day, like, you know, we go to a restaurant, we go to games, you're asking how tall am I, and all this, you know, all these kind of questions. Very interesting question. <laughs> you know, I had... I had Parents coming to me and asking me, "What is the secret of being tall?" Can I, you know, can you tell my kids uh, what are the, um, you know, what do you eat? What do you eat, basically, you know? And I, sometimes I just, I just tell them it's genetics, a part of it as well. And um, and it's something very common in our, you know, where I was born in South Sudan that you would see a lot of, you know, a lot of guys, you know, a lot of tall people. It's very common. Like for example, I had a couple of my friends. Uh, three of them, they are way taller than me. You know, one of the, you know, two of them are, you know. Uh, three, uh, you know, seven three, and the other one is seven five. So, this, so this is a very, is a very common thing. Height is a very common thing. But being in America, uh, it was become um, you pretty much become a celebrity because of your height. You know, people expected you to play some kind of you know you know basketball, basically. Yes. So basketball, I used basketball really well in terms of getting me a free education. And I was looking forward for a professional career, but unfortunately, with the sport, you know, injuries are some of the you know I had uh, torn my ACL. You know, had a new reconstruction and. That kind of just put a hole in terms of you know pursuing about Korea and basketball. How have you enjoyed uh, living in Australia? What's it like from your perspective? I had a great time. It's not just only a great time. You know the people here in Australia. I think they are the one that make being in this country more interesting and very welcoming. You know my my, my experience has been positive. I call Australia a second home to me because of the fact that you know the people were so welcoming. You know my experience has been shared pretty much by the people. When I first came here, you know, I didn't know anybody in terms of, you know, a young, young kid coming from a foreign country. I assimilated well with the young, you know, with the young people, even though it wasn't the best of the time, but it's been great. It's been a great experience for me. I love it. It's a lovely story, Aru. Well, good luck. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Look, I was at the Money Expo yesterday. I met this bloke. Interesting. Have a listen to this bloke. His name's... Uh, Graham Owen. I'm talking to Graham Owen. Graham, you're with the International Banknote Society. 
a worldwide organisation of about 3,000 members. Uh, Sydney Chapter's got about 100 members. And when did it start for you? When did you get the um, urge to start collecting <laughs> banknotes? I started collecting on the changeover from decimal currency, but I didn't know about the International Banknote Society until about 10 years ago, so I've only really been a serious collector for 10, maybe 15 years at max. But I have... I was working at Farmers when decimal currency came over and the farmers came in with the money that uh, they'd been holding under the mattress. King George V and King George VI banknotes I'd never seen in my life before, so I had to have some being a collector. It was a bit hard to afford in the when you're on £7.10 a week, but uh, I did manage to save a few. Yeah, that was the bug that got me started, and then later in life I've travelled quite extensively and collected souvenirs of my travels. When I found out about the International Banknote Society and that there are actually people that sell these things, I joined and uh, here I am today. What do you love about it continuing? Oh, the, the, the history and uh, the things you can learn about. These are notes here from countries that don't exist anymore. Don't exist as banknote-issuing countries, shall I say. So, you know, the Papal States and Andorra and Azores and Biafra, so those sort of places. So that's an interest. But people collect all sorts of things. They collect their birthdays or one particular year, like 1942, or uh, serial numbers that are solid numbers or radar where you can read the number in both directions. It's just unbelievable. I mean, people can specialise in just one country or a couple of people here today collect siege notes, for argument's sake, uh, from the Boer War or from Marfaking. It opens your mind unbelievably. You learn a hell of a lot about the world. And, Graeme, not only are you interested in notes, you're interested in uh, insects and heavy haulage. <laughs> There's a trifecta. Tell me about your insects. Oh, yes, I've been collecting since I was a seven-year-old boy. Went on holidays where there was a lot of little boys collecting uh, butterflies and my mother made me a butterfly net. I went to school and found, uh, to, took some butterflies along to show and tell, found I wasn't the only silly bugger that uh, collected them. So uh, here I am today, over 60 years later, I've got uh, a room that's about 5 by 5 and probably got 150 slide-out drawers of uh, butterflies and other insects it's not just butterflies i'm the president of the society for insect studies if i'm not wrong there's still a lot of insects that aren't but haven't been identified or classified or things like that oh yeah absolutely it's it's amazing i mean there's some of the biggest insects that exist are stick insects and it's only about 10 years ago that one of the big ones that lives in sydney was uh, discovered it's because they live in the tops of trees and unless they get blown out you don't uh, you often don't see them when i started collecting butterflies i think australia had about 275 recorded butterflies we've now got close to 400 there's a big atlas moth that's only been discovered in darwin in quite recent times they exist throughout southeast asia and they exist in queensland but there's a new variety been found in Darwin and again it's the size of a dinner plate so if you start thinking about things that are the size of the head of a pin then we have a lot to learn still. Tell me about the heavy haulage and your involvement with that Graham. Yeah, heavy haulage is a, an interesting side of the market. It's, uh, you, you need to know engineering, you need to do 
It's not just throw a package on the back of a truck. You know, we've got to work out whether we can get down streets or rivers or what have you, whether they're I'm talking about things that are over-dimensional, some very over-dimensional. Some things can't go on the roads, but they can still be moved by sea, if you know what I mean. We've moved things that are 60 metres high and 30 metres wide. The biggest object that Bramble's moved was a uh, offshore platform for replacement called the E.E. Caledonia for the ill-fated Piper Alpha in the North Sea. That was 13,760 tonnes on, I forget how many wheels, over a 1,000 wheels. And it was rolled onto a barge that was pumping Sydney Harbour in one end and Sydney Harbour out the other end to ballast it for as you could, could be driven on. So that's the sort of thing. But we move everything from 200-tonne transformers to 1,000-tonne port cranes to buildings. And Graham, what's your background? Are you an engineer? No, I, uh, my qualifications are quite different. I became a customs agent. I won a case against customs and then took customs, customs changed the rules so I took them back to court again and won it a second time so I proved that vitamin E was a medicine and then I proved it wasn't a medicine and then I thought well this must be the peak of my career what else is there and there was a fellow in the office who used to be able to ask him you know if I need to move carpets what sort of a truck do I need and he'd say oh one with gate sides or whatever who'd always talk to about a concrete pumping truck so he'd tell me who that was 20 years later I'm him (laughs) I was uh, moving a big object up in Yamba and got up at one o'clock to meet the police for a two o'clock move and I listened to the ABC and they had a uh, program on how long a body had been dead by the insects that were attending the body. It was probably a program that was only suited for that hour of the day perhaps but it really intrigued me and it was nearly late for the cops because I had to because I was very keen to hear the outcome of the article. Well, it involved heavy haulage and insects, uh, two of your passions. <laughs> yeah, it did, yes. <laughs> Good on you, Graham. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank you. Good luck with the program. Thank you. I went to the Money Expo yesterday and I met uh, these people. Come and meet them. Your name is? Nick Anning. Moss Green Auctions. Uh, we sell coins and banknotes, uh, stamps, postal history. What's a quid worth these days, sir, Nick? It depends from uh, when it was printed. They can be anything from $10,000 to a quid. And how did you get involved in this, Nick? Oh, look, I've collected since I was seven years old, stamps and coins. You Started have, as a childhood thing? Correct. Uh, you have to have a passion. And what's, it like, what's the interest like? Because we live now in a what they're calling the cashless society and people are tapping on and tapping off. They say there'll be end of notes and coins at some stage. Look, I, I, I don't accept that. I think there will always be some form of specie, some sort of money. What do you love about a, a lovely pound note or a ten pound note? Aren't they beautiful? The art of the engraver, I would like to see someone engrave something as beautiful as one of these notes now. It's a lost art. Uh, it's, the, the detail is incredible. To do a portrait on a copper plate using just lines, just incredible. Uh, there were very few people that could do it well. And of course there's the uh, uh, anti-forgery aspect as well so it's all in the detail well that's what they told us when they shifted to plastic notes they said oh well they can these can be forged but geez you'd be a pretty good forger to forge one of those 10 pound notes with the engraving on them wouldn't you uh yes and uh if you look at the uh, they call this white line work there are different ways of reproducing 
a forgery and one of them is using photography. This ink is actually raised and to photograph you won't get the same image as the note because it creates shadows. If, you, if I take out one of these notes and hold it up to the light you can see the ink is actually raised and they're little, like, little pyramids and to uh, photographically reproduce that uh, is almost impossible. Uh, there are lots of other, other methods but um, yeah, that's the main, the main reason for the white, what they call white line work. And when you keep these, you've got to keep them in sort of air-conditioned rooms or what's the, how do you preserve old notes and the paper that they're on? Okay, you need to keep them in special plastics that don't leach chemicals. There's older products which have actually damaged the, the contents of the, of the collection. Uh, fortunately, these days, there's a, a lot more knowledge about the types of plastics that damage the inks. In fact, the post office sells stamps in packaging that ends up ruining the product they're selling. So, yes, you need to buy a decent album and the correct conservation products for your notes and keep them out of strong light. Good on you, Nick. Nice to talk to you. Good luck. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm wandering around at the Money Expo, and it seems to be a bloke thing, mostly. Your name is... Judy is. How are you, Judy? I'm fine, thanks. Tell me about your you and coins and notes and things. Well, the only thing I'm interested in, when I was born in 1940, my grandmother gave me a half sovereign, and I meant to bring it in with me to have a look and see how much it's worth, and forgot it, of course. <laughs> That's the only reason we're here. I'm oh, here. Oh, really? And then dragged me along. Yeah, it seems to be a black thing, doesn't it, eh? It does, definitely, yeah. You're in? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and you're not a collector either? Oh, I've got a few coins at home, but mm. I don't think I've got anything very valuable. You never know, though. Until you see all these wonderful coins here, you don't know what's valuable. Women are more interested in the practical things of life, aren't they? Yes, well, <laughs> and, and, and men like collecting, like stamps. Stamps is another male thing, I think. When I think of my father and my yeah. sons, you know, through school... They always collected all those sort of things. So, so I might end up having to give my half sovereign to my eldest son because <laughs> I don't want to sell it. <laughs> well, nice history. Yeah, nice to talk to you both. Thank okay. you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. How are you doing? Oh, good, thank you. It's Bob from, from Parks. Draco from Parks. Oh, g'day, Bob. How are you? Oh, I'm fit as a... Oh, yeah, real well, thanks. Real well, yeah. <laughs> what, what's happening, mate? Well, I was just going to tell you, I was going to ring you from Africa, but I couldn't get the bloody phone to work because they've got all these different companies here, so I just give up. So I'm home now, I'll let you know. I had a fabulous time over there. Where were you? Well, I flew into Johannesburg. I ended up catching 11 aeroplanes and nearly got lost, but I flew into Johannesburg, done a couple of safaris up through Botswana and the Bibi and all that, and then I did the same, but... Uh, the highlight, I think, was going to the School of St. Jude's. Tell us. The School of St. Jude's that was formed by that uh, Gemma Rice from up near Armadale. Uh-huh. And she, she was on a uh, on your ABC and got a, a medal for, uh, for for education work. But it was fabulous. The, uh, but the, the, if you went to Africa, what would you use for money, do you think? Um, tell me, well, Bobby, I, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> well, I thought Africa, you'd just get a handful of those rand and you'd be right. So I've landed there with a few American dollars and a few Aussie dollars and got a big handful of rand. time I got the next suburb, Namibia, they didn't like them. You had to get their money with Namibian dollars. Oh, that was fair enough. I got up to about Botswana. They didn't like them either. So I get this handful of these things called pullers. Yeah. And then away I go, and here, then I still got this other money. 
That lasted a little while. Then I went back to Rands. Then I got up to Tanzania. And guess what? They're in shillings. <laughs> so I've got all this paper money in my pocket. <laughs> but anyhow, I used to find enough bank card at work anywhere. But it was just a marvellous place. The people that haven't got much, but the bit they got, they look after and they smile all the time. Uh, and they wear all these colourful garments. They don't sort of get around like a lot of Australians in, in black shoes, black trousers and black shirts and all that. They like colour. <laughs> what do you yeah. think it what do you do, what do you think it is about the um the attitude to life, Bobby? What is it? It's uh, is it because they haven't got a lot? Is that why they're happy? Yeah, well they don't have to sit down counting it, do they? <laughs> no, they just uh they got a, what what they got they look after. Yeah. And, and they smile. And I'll tell you what, though, it's interesting. If you wink at one of the girls, they, they get the giggles laughing. Oh, do they I really? Get, I don't think anybody's ever winked at them before. Oh, it used to. <laughs> so I was having the time of my life. They can sort of, they can understand you if you, uh, to get a message across. Yeah. And at one place, we was on a, out in the Serengeti with a guy, and it was cut. We were on the equator, mind, and it was cold. Yeah. And we lit a fire. Mm. And there's about a dozen or so of us. And the guy decided, because he'd heard me around the camp whistling and singing and messing around, and this night we'd have a campfire and a bit of a sing-along. So he says to me, this Tanzanian man, nice like Michael, he said, do you know that song, Waltzing Matilda? I said, yes, I've heard it once or twice. <laughs> he said, can we sing that tonight? He said, I reckon I heard it once, it was terrific. But I couldn't remember the third verse about the up come the stockman. <laughs> Quick as a half an hour later, he's come back and we've got his phone, all the words. So oh, really? We, so we got to, I taught him to sing the chorus, but then we're into singing it. They can understand my words, but there, there was Matilda. They didn't know what a billabong was or jumbuck, but there was an English lady who lived with so She's translating as we go along. Met the stockman and the billabong and... But they just sort of, they love, they, they can sing. There you go. If you go to Mass on Sunday morning, you won't get out under two hours. <laughs> they, they, just, they all go yeah. singing. They all sing. Yeah, and they walk miles. I was going in a taxi somewhere on sun, Sunday morning, and there's people everywhere in their real good clothes. Oh, well, they're good. I, should, I don't know if they're best. I've only got one. They're lovely and clean and big flowing garment. Mm. And I said, what's going on? He said, oh, they'll be going to church. So these people don't worry them to walk, walk five miles to get to church. Wow. How yeah. about that? Anyhow, this girl is in Dunes. There's 1,800 kids in. It's only been going 16 years. And none of them pay for anything. The borders, and that's 1,200 boards. They get fed and watered, clothes and mental and dental and medical. Pay nothing. Rotary, Rotary around the world pays most of the bills. And then a lot of kids have sponsors. And this is in but, Tanzania, isn't it? Yeah, at Arusha. Arusha. That's the main city, I think, in Tanzania. Yeah. Uh, so. There you go, Bobby. Great, uh, another, another great... Um, um, They're looking for 40,000 teachers. Wow, gee. 40,000. Girls and youths, they won't have more than 25 in a class. And in the government schools, they've got 140 because they can't get teachers. And when they when they had these recent big exams countrywide, forty eight percent of the government schools kids passed, ninety nine percent of St Jude's kids passed. Well, there you go, Bobby. It's been a great experience for you, mate. Good on you. Her motto at the school was eliminate poverty with education.
Yeah, good good motto too. Good on you, Bob. See you, mate. Good on. Gonna hop on me. Gonna hop on me bike now. Seeing that be stolen, go for a ride. Okay. Good on you. It's a beautiful, beautiful morning here. See you, Macca. See you, You're doing a good job. Bye. Oh, hi, Macca. It's Bethany Simons calling from Dubbo. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Bethany. That's good. Look, um, I was just listening to Amber Hammond um, playing and talking about her travels and we're finding a way to uplift and inspire audiences and going to remote areas. And um, I've talk- talked to you a few times before about my play, The Weather and Your Health, which is about my oh, grandmother in Gilgandra. That's right. I remember and that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've got um, I've just started a national tour of my other show, Reception the Musical, which is a celebration of administration. <laughs> we take that around <laughs> to, um, to communities around the place and, um, and we like to get people to together for a bit of an office party and uh yeah we have lamingtons and post-it notes in the foyer people write responses to the show and, no alcohol yeah no no I alcohol know, at the office party on, please it depends on we just hang around the water cooler yeah no we um yeah so we have this little show that we've written and we're going um to a few places in the Sunraysia region this week and then up to queensland but um the, the thing about um the, about the last guest was interesting because my radical sabbatical my year off that i've just taken overseas I headed off with um, one year off work and no plans, so I literally just followed my nose and I ended up in places that I never expected to go as a woman by myself. I went to India and the Middle East and I was in Southeast Asia and things like that. And I was thinking about our national anthem for We Are Young and Free and I never knew what that meant until I was living with a family in Bethlehem in a refugee camp in the Middle East. So um, I've been thinking about how we've got access to so many things here and um, I'd like to maybe try and take my shows or do some storytelling overseas and things like that and yeah I don't know anyway I was just very inspired by your last guest. Tell me about your your, your, um, We Are Young and Free and your family that you were living with. Oh yeah so I mean I was I was travelling in Israel and I realised I hadn't seen the West Bank yet and I thought if you're going to understand the conflict in the Middle East you really need to see both sides of the story and so um, I went to I heard about this refugee camp and they uh, they have a family there that have started a school for kids with disabilities there's lots of kids in that camp um, that have no access to education or um, you know um, medical and things like that and they do have a room though in their house that they rent out to people and I, I paid to stay there and that money goes directly to supporting the school so these people they can't that nobody helps them so they help themselves which is really inspiring and it was a hugely humbling experience um, but it helped me to to realize that there's no point in taking sides in that conflict I have to be a bridge in between because I can travel to one side and make friends and then come back and report to the other side so I, I was planning to go for two weeks to Israel and I actually stayed for two months in the Middle East traveling around part of Ramadan I got 15 marriage proposals one night when I was wearing a hijab in Jordan and <laughs> got offered 30 camels. And The stories are amazing. I don't know what to do with them. Really, well, you can't, but... you can't uh, turn your nose up at 30 camels, mate. No, I know. Well, you know, I really thought about it and then I just thought, how would I get them home? And then I realised I wouldn't be coming home. So I, I said no. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so the straight back to reality or a fantasy reality where I'm playing um, you know, this receptionist on stage and going out and seeing these, these people in different communities. We're going to places like Weramal and Oyen and Charters Towers and things like that. So it's always lovely. 
You spend your yeah. life on the road too, really, Bethany, don't I do. you? Yeah, so living out of a suitcase was no problem for the year off. Everyone was saying, gosh, don't you make your own bed? I said, oh, I'm never in my own bed anyway. It's, I'm always travelling around when I'm touring my show. But, yeah, I really love it. It's a privilege to, to go and meet audiences. And what's funny about the show, the Celebration of Administration, Reception, the musical, is that people come up to me afterwards and say things like, you know, that's my life and I, I can't wait to go to work on Monday. I thought that's the best review I've ever had. <laughs> you can't wait to go to work. So... Yeah, it inspires them to love their job. Uh, more power to you. Celebr- What's it called? Celebration of the Administration? It's, co- it's, co- it's called Reception the Musical. Reception, yeah. Reception the Musical. <laughs> yeah. And the opening song is My Name is Bethany, Not Stephanie. A lot of people can relate to that when they get your name wrong and <laughs> do you have sticky tape and they ring my bell. There's lots of little songs in there that we've written. So, yeah, people can go to bethanysimons.com for the info. All right, Bethany, good on right. you. Good luck. Thanks, Macca. It's a pleasure. Bye. Bye. I meant to share this with you when around Waterloo, which was around September, and it came from Norma, Norma Richardson. She sent me a card that the War Widows Guild put out about Wattle, and I'll read it to you because I think it's um, it's mighty. And I was sort of disappointed that more schools don't do a Wattle Day thing. Whatever you do, there's a lot of history of Wattle Day, and you can there's lots of things you could do with uh, the Litleys on Wattle Day. Talk about Australian flora and fauna and animals that live in wattle trees, lots of lovely things. But this is from the War Widows Guild, and I'm indebted to Norma for sending me this. Norma's from Woodend in Victoria. But on the back of this little card, it's called Wattle, Australia's National Floral Emblem, there are over a 1,000 species of acacia plant within Australia, and when in flower, they proudly display our national colours, green and gold. Using wattle as a symbol is resplendent of all that is Australian, be it in remembrance, in celebration, or the start of something new. Wattle Day encourages us to celebrate what it is that makes us Australians, good humour, fairness, generosity, informality, and democracy. The wattle is a cheery flower, and when it first blossoms, we are heartened that spring and new beginnings are on the way. Wattle sprigs were sold to raise money during the First World War for organisations such as the Red Cross. The wearing of wattle in memory of Australians who have died overseas has been revived in recent years. Wattle is also worn at citizenship ceremonies, signifying a link to new beginnings. The Order of Australia medal design is based on an individual ball of wattle. A magnificent medal, it is complete with golden wattle motives on a ribbon of blue, the blue signifying our country surrounded by sea. The golden wattle was unofficially accepted as the national floral emblem to mark Federation in 1901. In 1912, the Prime Minister of the day suggested that it be included as a decoration surrounding the Commonwealth coat of arms. Wattle Day was formally recognised on the 23rd of June 1992, although it was originally introduced by the Wattle Day League in 1913. Governor-General Sir Ninian Stevens proclaimed Golden Wattle the national floral emblem on the 19th of August 1988. Today in Australia we celebrate National Wattle Day on the first day of September. This builds upon a long unofficial tradition of wearing the wattle blossom on the first of September. War Widows Guild founder Mrs Jessie Mary Vasey wrote in May 1963 that she felt that the War Widows Guild should have a particular flower designated for use when making wreaths and in representation. What could be more beautiful than wattle, she declared. When abroad in London for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, she came across the most beautiful artificial wattle and promptly purchased all available stock. Upon return to Australia, the War Widows Guild used the stock to make wreaths and crosses, which were laid at the National War Memorial in Canberra. Mrs Vasey called upon all state guilds to try and use wattle wherever possible. And the War Widows Guild is in uh, Hawthorne, Victoria, Post Office Box 203. Hawthorne, Victoria, 3122.